Welcome to Revenue Rehab, your one-stop destination for collective solutions to the biggest challenges faced by marketing leaders today. Now head on over to the couch, make yourself comfortable, and get ready to change the way you approach revenue. Leading your recovery is modern marketer, author, speaker, and chief operating officer at Tegrita, Brandy Starr. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Revenue Rehab. I am your host, Brandy Starr, and we have another amazing episode for you today. I am joined by Alex Levin. Alex is the co-founder and CEO of Regal Voice, where he leads the go-to-marketing teams. Prior to Regal Voice, Alex was a product manager at Personal and Thomson Reuters, and then joined Handy as an early employee. Alex grew up in New York and received his BA from Harvard. Alex, welcome to Revenue Rehab. Your session begins now. Hey, thank you for having me. I am excited to talk to you. I always love to hear about uh, those journeys and how everyone progresses through their careers. But before we jump into that, I like to break the ice with a little woo-saw moment that I call buzzword banishment. So tell me what buzzword would you like to get rid of forever? So I actually, I was asking my wife, uh, about this and she gave me a bunch but uh, <laughs> I, uh so she has even a stronger opinion but there's, there's one that's always bothered me if for some reason uh, i hate being called a millennial so i know it's you know anybody who was born sort of post 1982-83 which includes me through whatever it was 90s at some point but for some reason like there's this generational idea of like oh millennials all behave like this millennials do that millennials in the workforce want this thing and I guess it's like any of these sort of fake made up groups that really are not connected to anything uh, are obviously going to be incorrect. But, you know, as a marketer, I try not to make that mistake. And like I always sort of, I don't know, get a little uh, annoyed whenever people start talking about, oh, as a millennial, I must believe X, Y and Z. Yeah, I, I am with you on that one. And I think my biggest issue with the term millennial is it has grown to just be used to reference young people. And it's like, technically, millennials are like close to 40 now. Yeah. So it's not the 20 something just entering the workforce. So it's like, you know, it's, people aren't even using it accurately. Like they're really referring to like Gen Z and Gen A when they're saying millennials. So I, I'm with you there uh, in terms of it's a really misleading term. Um, so I will not refer to you as a millennial during this conversation. And we will put millennials in the box uh, and not talk about it, um, at least for the next half hour or so. Um, so now that we've gotten that off our chest, um, you are here on the couch as a part of the My Journey series. And uh, for those who have not listened to any of the My Journey episodes, this is an opportunity for me to talk to senior leaders who have taken um, a less than traditional path uh, through their careers. Um, because I think 
something that each of us, as we take a role, you, you know, each role really shapes you and you learn different things about yourself and your talents and what you like and what you never want to do again. And so sometimes it sends us in interesting directions. And so that is one reason why I started this series. Um, after you listen to my conversation with Alex, Feel free to go back to episodes 35, 37, and 41, where I uh, talk to others about their journey. Um, but Alex, I want to start with a really simple question, um, which is when you were a kid, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Oh, uh, it's a great question. I, I, I guess from a relatively young age, I understood I'd be somewhere in the business world. I had a, my father ran a small business and, you know, not that he brought everything to the dinner table we kind of understood that like there was something happening where you know he had had the complexities and highs and lows of, of business there was sort of no specifics within that so it wasn't like i understood anything what business meant at that age but i think i kind of got that when i went to college i went to liberal arts school and uh i studied philosophy and psychology and for a while i thought about going into academia and I just found it was so isolating and it just wasn't something I was really that interested in doing for years and not engaging with other human beings at all. And so eventually um, came back to the idea of going into more sort of some kind of business role. Okay. Yeah. It's really interesting. I also thought that I wanted to teach in a college setting. I got my undergrad in marketing and my graduate degree in adult education with the intent of teaching marketing in a college setting. And after I got the degree, much like you, started looking at it and it was like, this is not actually the life I want to live. Uh, yeah. And so I jumped the fence and went with consulting because it's kind of teaching adults, but without uh, the traditional academia. So I definitely can relate there. And I know for you, you started in product um, mm -hmm. and then have progressed to being a CEO. So kind of talk about, you know, some of your career project pro progression and how you've navigated that. Give us the big picture of your overall career history. Yeah, sure. So, you know, when I was in undergrad, uh, a lot of the recruiting for sort of business type roles uh, was from banks and consulting companies. Uh, that was really all that was offered. And I actually look back at it and I think it's something that some of the sort of big liberal arts schools do very badly is that they don't present the full swath of what of the kind of business roles that really exist because they're bringing on to campus, you know, Goldman Sachs and, you know, they're bringing McKinsey, but they're not bringing everything else. So, you know, I applied to a bunch of those sorts of roles and I actually worked for uh, investment bank this was a while ago. And, and I thought the work was fascinating, actually. But there, in my case, there were uh, a lot of people on the teams that I worked for that didn't like the work. And it wasn't what they wanted to be doing. They were only there for the money. And I thought, this is not a great place to work because people are not having fun. They're not doing what they want to be doing. They're doing this only for one reason. It wasn't necessarily the wrong reason. They're, it just I wanted to make sure I was somewhere with people that actually enjoyed their work. So, you know, as part of that realization, you know, I, I started looking at other business roles myself, you know, without sort of any of the career recruiting and found that, you know, what really interested me the most was all these technology businesses. And I'd read some of this, um, there was an article back in, in sort of, I can't remember exactly the year, but in that time period where Mark Andreessen said, you know, software is eating the world. Every business would become a software business. 
And I intrinsically just understood that that was to be the case, that if you wanted to be as an exec at a company in the future, you had to understand how software is built, what software did, because every business was going to be a software business. So relatively early in my career, I started working for, to your point, you know, roles where I could be in technology companies, where I could learn how product was built as a product manager. Turns out I'm not a great product manager. You know, I'm an okay product manager. I'm fine at it, but uh, there were much better product managers. So I switched more into commercial roles, which I was much better at, where, you know, I understood the economics of different parts of businesses, you know, how to go to market, how to, you know, make customers successful. And so ultimately I switched more into those kind of roles. But I think, you know, all, whenever people, you know, tell me they want to eventually be an executive at a large modern company, I make the same point of, you know, they're not going to allow you to, you know, run the company, whatever, drive the car, unless you are a technologist, because that is the core piece of every company in the future. So early in your career, go learn that stuff. If you didn't go to undergrad for engineering, go get roles where you can learn how to build product. I really like that um, because, you know, that is one of those things when you're, for someone who's starting out in their career, if they know their ultimate goal is to reach the C-suite, a lot of people don't really think about the variety of experience that you really need to be effective in that. Like no matter what, you know, that line is, it's not a direct like, oh, I want to head marketing one day. So the only thing I've ever done is marketing or I want to be the CEO. So I've only really got to be good at finance or, you know, strategy. Like there are so many of those different experiences that lend well to it. And I, I like what you said around the importance for you of actually enjoying the work and working with people that enjoy the work and having the self-awareness to recognize that like, I'm getting this job done, but I'm not that great at it. Let me figure out how to pivot. And so I'd like to dig into that first pivot a little bit in how did you recognize that that was just kind of a meh role for you? Like what were some of those self-awareness things that made you understand that there was a, that it was a time for a shift? Yeah, it sort of happened naturally for me, but you know, the reason I wanted to become a product manager was to learn you know, how you do, how you wrote product specs, how engineering teams figured out what to build, you know, how the thing was actually built from the inside. And, you know, it gave me a front row seat to that and it was fantastic. And, you know, I did a lot of my own sort of uh, uh, research and learning outside of work, but it got me to a place where, you know, I, I'm not saying I'm an engineer, I'm not, but I could certainly sort of speak up if something was, you know, going in the wrong direction. I understood enough to understand kind of right or wrong or different directions. I think what I also came to understand is to be a great product manager requires, you know, just a deep, deep desire to spend time, you know, diagramming out all the different possible ways which the product could work or not work. And, you know, writing these specs wasn't that exciting to me. What was more exciting to me was how customers were going to use it and how we were going to commercialize what customers are doing with that. And so I'd find myself being, you know, pulled more in that direction in conversation and less in the other. And, you know, different orgs call these things different things, but I eventually knew that I didn't want to be the one writing all the technical documents, doing all that piece, because it wasn't what I was most passionate about. And I wanted to find a way more into the commercial side. And so it was, you know, again, a little bit 
unusual. I wasn't sure what kinds of roles I should take, but eventually found roles more on the commercial side in business development and in general management and, you know, and being a PL owner and eventually like running marketing and growth teams where, you know, even though, uh, let's say I wasn't an expert in any one of those topics, you know, by sort of playing those different roles over time, I gained the expertise necessary to, you know, be somebody running a bigger part of a business. And so by the time at Angie, you know, I was running hundreds of millions of dollars in PNL, where we had, you know, all these different teams working on the projects that I was in charge of, I had a much better insight into what each team was doing. And so it, it definitely, you know, at the time felt a bit haphazard, the different roles I was playing. But by the end, you know, I'd learned a lot. Yeah, and I think that is also something key as you navigate your career. Um, and I know something that I struggled with early on in my career is being okay with that haphazard progression. You know, like in some cases, at least I know growing up, I was always taught about very linear progressions. That was a time in life when People would, you know, work for one company their whole career. And it was like, you do this and then you move to that role. And then, you know, it was like this incremental, very linear career approach. And it took me some time to really actually get comfortable with like, you know, I can make these weird zigzags and, you know, hop on this different path and hop back and that these aren't, aren't bad things. Um, so what were some of the, cause you know, there's, the obviously the business learnings, but going through having all those different commercial roles, what were some of the personal learnings and takeaways that you were able to gain? Uh, you know, a lot of different companies. I mean, a, a couple of stories that I often tell. So one, I worked for a much larger technology company called Thomson Reuters at one point, and I uh, was going to leave and go to a smaller startup. And I went to a uh, person who had been my boss for a while. And I said, you know, look, I'm going to go to this small company. And he, and he takes me aside and he goes, you know what? Like, you know, yes, I understand where a bigger technology company might feel like a big ship, uh, you know, and turning a big ship takes a lot of effort, but when you do, it impacts a lot of people. You're going to go to this little startup and, you know, it's going to feel like you're moving things really fast, but the reality is you're not impacting anybody. And I actually thought it was the quintessential misunderstanding of technology companies. The promise of technology is that a very small company, very few people can both move fast and impact a lot of people. And so it only sort of redoubled my desire to get out of this larger organization somewhere where I thought you could do both the speed and the impact. So that's one sort of thought I give people. I think another one <clears throat> that I learned throughout is you're taught, you know, maybe from movies or books or just popular culture that, you know, the more senior person you know, uh, has a lot, a lot of organization reporting to them. Many people work for them and that's what makes them important or like, you know, senior in an organization. And at some point I worked for somebody who I think made a good point that I believe in strongly now, which is that shouldn't be the goal. The goal shouldn't be how many people work for you. It shouldn't be empire building. That's actually like a sign of failure in some cases. The most successful people in organizations are able to take a challenging problem. So the problem might be, hey, we need to enter a new market, or it might be, hey, we need to improve our marketing, or it might be, uh, let's go and figure out how to build a new product. But they can take that challenge, and with it might come some people that report to them, with it might come no people, but structure the problem, figure out the levers, move in the direction that you want to go in, 
and then extricate themselves. And actually the most successful people are the ones who can, whether the team reports to them or not, make it so that that, that team no longer needs them at all, right? Make it so that if I were hit by a bus, so to speak, that team could completely run on its own. Why is that important? Well, that means that you've actually uh, enabled yourself to go do the next thing. So what would happen often I'd see in sort of friends' careers is they go to some company and they make themselves completely indispensable in a role. And then they'd ask for a promotion. And guess what? Well, they don't want to promote you when you're indispensable in a role because they can't take you out of the role that you're in. They'd make it harder for themselves to get promoted. So the trick is to both solve the problem and create a system such that it can be repeated without you with either technology, uh, you know, some process or other people ideally who are going to be paid less than you, let's say, because you've now made the problem easier and they don't need to hire as talented a person and you can go on to the next. So that shift in mentality from empire building to making yourself redundant is actually a critical one, I think, to being successful in modern workforce today. I love that because I do think that there is this mentality of I need to like create, it's almost like creating job security. If no one can do what I do, then that means they've got to retain me. They've got to, you know, value me and all these sorts of things, which as an individual contributor, like I kind of get it, not necessarily that I agree, but I at least get it. Um, but you're right. When you are in a leadership role, success is having people, whether they report to you directly or, you know, indirectly be able to deliver in your absence. Because I see so many executives that get bogged down too much in the weeds that they can't actually be effective at what they need to be effective in because they don't have that well-oiled machine or those people that, um, you know, that, that make you redundant. Yeah. Um, so that is really, really sound advice there. And there, there's phases to it. Like, uh, you know, I'm not suggesting you make yourself, you know, uh, redundant day one. You know, it's important day one to dig in, understand all the details, figure out what the levers are, then do it yourself and prove that it can be done. And then once people start believing, you know, hand it off to other people. You know, I think the other thing that we believe in a lot, uh, you know, my co-founder and I is even when you're a manager, you should be taking 20% of your time and doing the IC job that works for you. Why? Well, a lot of, you know, one, by doing the work that you're assigning, basically, you can see what stupid things you're assigning. Because often, like, you know, <laughs> you're, you're, doing, you're asking people to do silly things. You don't realize unless you do it yourself. Two, by doing it, you're continuing to get the feedback much faster about what's happening from a customer, if it's a customer thing, or from the code base, if it's a code base. You know, there's nothing that's going to get you feedback as fast as you doing it. You know, if you have other people do it, sure, they'll eventually tell you, but much slower. And then last, it, you know, it brings a lot of respect from your team if they see that you're also doing the same thing. You're pulling an oar or you're doing it perhaps even better than the rest so that they have somebody to go and look at. So it's not that you have to be better than the people that work for you, but it, it I think goes a long way to show that you can actually do it yourself and you care enough to do it yourself. So even in a world where you become, you know, make yourself redundant, you should still be doing some of it just to stay, you know, very connected to it. And then, you know, make a decision about where your time is best spent. It, you know, if you're a small business owner and you know, the most important thing for your business are these five accounts, even if you've created a good process, you're going to spend a lot of your time on those five accounts. You know, if you're a founder, 
you know, the great part about having a founder in a business is that there's going to be nobody ever who's as crazy detail oriented as a founder, who's going to be obsessed with like all these little things as a founder. To your point, sometimes it can slow things down, but a lot of times like that's what keeps businesses alive is somebody who's so insane that they're going to like focus on every little detail. Um, which is a good segue because I want to talk about you being the founder of Regal Voice. Um, talk about how that came to be. How did you move from, you know, working in a, a corporate or small business setting to actually founding your company? So both my co-founder and I had worked for technology companies and, uh, you know, had, we'd known each other a long time, but on our own, we'd come to the realization we wanted to be entrepreneurs. And not everybody does. You, know, you have to be a little bit insane to be an entrepreneur. You know, you're going on completely on your own and, you know, you know there's going to be roller coaster up and downs, but, you know, you, you believe in something enough that you want to go and do it. So we come to that realization and then realize we wanted to do it together, which is a very important, uh, you know, step, like find a co-founder and not just somebody you meet on Reddit, like for five minutes, like truly find somebody that you're going to work with for years and that's very complimentary to your skill set. And then, you know, as we started going through the different businesses that we, we you know, liked, we found one that both of us were very interested in and, you know, dug into that one. And so I think that's a very typical set of steps that people should go through, at least as they get into it. The next thing uh, I recommend to people is, is don't just go and try to raise money, whether it's debt or equity, whatever it is, you know, spend some time proving to yourself that this is a business that you want to spend 10 years in and you know what's going to prove that to you well prove that it's a viable business economically that's important you know prove that it's something you're going to stay interested in for 10 years because whether you know it or not now you're going to have to say exactly the same thing for the next 10 years of your life <laughs> on repeat so like if you don't like it then that's not a good sign you know so prove that and then you know spend some time understanding the kind of people that you're going to work with if this succeeds I think that last one is something that people don't think about enough. <clears throat> you can have a very successful, uh, you know, trucking business or, you know, logistics business where you do very well and maybe you're very interested in it, but maybe, the, you know, the type of people you can hire are very different. You're not going to get the ex McKinsey and BCG consultants necessarily working for you. On the other hand, in a business like ours, which is a, you know, VC backed high growth technology company, we can attract, you know, the top, you know, X, whatever, uh, you know, best schools, best work environment folks who are, you know, very high horsepower and excited to work on this project with us. So I think, you know, you decide what matters to you. For us, ultimately what mattered is, you know, obviously we wanted an economically viable business. So we found one. Uh, we realized that it was something we were passionate about and could spend time with because not only were we selling a product to companies, but it ultimately massively impacted their end user. So we sell software that, these big organizations use to help their end customers, you know, uh, buy their products. So SoFi, for instance, uses us to also talk to their customers and get them to refinance their student loans as an example. And then on the last one, we, it was very clear we'd be able to track very high end talent, which was important to us because we wanted to work with uh, that kind of person every day because we wanted to have a company that, you know, really cared about the thing we were doing and, and move forward very quickly. Uh, and so we started the business and, you know, now we're three years in and we've been very lucky, you know, on all accounts that it's gone more or less to plan. Okay. Yeah. And the one thing that I, I hear in that, in taking away what you want your 
business environment to be and understanding that like attracting top talent is a thing that's important. I think that's a, a really key thing, whether someone is pursuing entrepreneurship or even just choosing your next role in, you know, where you want to lead, like, what is that environment that you want to be in? Do you want to work for a company where you know you are attracting the best of the best? Do you want to work in an environment where, you know, that startup environment where everybody's got that entrepreneurial mindset, but they may not be as, you know, top tier talent by all the standards um, you know, it's like all those sorts of things I do think is important when you are crafting that career journey, not just when starting a business. I definitely think it's way more important when you're starting a business, but just for those that are not, you know, those listening that are not in that mindset as well, I think that is a, a takeaway that is important also. Um, and so my last question that I always like to ask, although the majority of our listeners are already senior leaders, um, I do always like to get some advice for those early in their career. So for those who are kind of in those early roles, figuring out where they want to go, what advice would you offer them? Yeah, uh, so a couple things. I saw an interview uh, from Obama recently where somebody was asking him, like, what, you know, when you were hiring all these people, like, what matters most? And I loved his answer. He was a little more circuitous than I'm going to be. But basically, he said, there's lots of very talented people who came to work for me. But the ones that ultimately were the best were the ones that could get things done. And then there's a big difference between a very talented person and somebody who could get things done. Because if I hand them a project, a very talented person does a ton of work. He comes back with whatever, a ton of work. The one who gets things done comes back with, oh, here, it's solved. And he can go think about the next thing. So as a person, you know, earlier in your career, you know, think about that uh, in terms of what's, you know, what's the difference between, you know, just doing the work versus like just making it very easy for the company you're working for because you've solved the problem for them. <clears throat> the other one is, you know, I'd say uh, depends on what you want as a career, but in general, when people ask me like how to make a decision in terms of their next role, I suggest looking at basically the, how fast the company is growing because that's a sign that there's going to be new opportunities, new roles, things are changing, there's room for you to progress and, you know, who your boss is, you know, are they the type of person that's going to look out for you and get you the opportunities you need? If those things are true. Look, don't go somewhere that's going to pay you so little you can't pay your rent. That's a bad situation. But as long as you can pay your rent and your basic expenses earlier career, I think those are the things that are going to give you the most learnings as fast as possible and set you up for a role that's much bigger later, potentially. So, you know, sure, you know, sometimes you have to make a decision for salary only because there's a reason you need to pay back your student loans or whatever it may be. But as much as possible, I'd say try to early in your career, try to take that out of it because what ultimately sort of leads to the big differences in, in financial outcomes and in success is not you know, whether you made an extra few thousand dollars in one role or another earlier in your career. It's, you know, did you, were you at the right type of company where you got the learnings? Did you have the right type of boss who helped you out? Yeah, I think that is incredible advice. And one thing that I don't, you know, the, the current generation entering the marketplace, because salaries are so much more public, um, I think there is this mentality of really just trying to go after whatever is the largest salary. 
um, which of course has its short-term benefits. But I do agree with you in that trying to, you know, make sure that you make enough to survive, like that's that's a given. But beyond that, really choosing a company that's going to give you the experience, the exposure, working for, you know, someone who's really going to help you thrive is so, so much more valuable than what the number is and opens you up to much bigger numbers later in the career when, you know, also from a life perspective, you typically need that larger salary with, you know, kids and houses and all those sorts of things that generally happen when you're a bit later in your career, you know, if you follow a more air quotes, traditional path. Um, so I think that that is really, really um, helpful. Um, and so my last question is along the same lines, you know, we always talk about nothing changes if nothing changes. And I always like people to walk away from each conversation at Revenue Rehab with a takeaway. And so for those that are further in their career and, you know, are thinking about what their next progression is, whether that's out of corporate and being a founder or, you know, into some other role, what would be your one thing? Um, how do you, you know, how do you self-evaluate or how do you figure out what that next right move? Any advice for those that are further along in their career? Yeah, I mean, and this is going to be obvious, but I'll say it anyway, you know, be very intellectually honest with, you know, what you want, what you don't want, what you're good at, what you're not. You know, the people who get themselves into trouble are the ones that are kind of lying to themselves about what they want or what they can do. And then they end up in a bad situation. You know, if, if you sort of are, see all your friends get this thing and you fool yourself into believing that you want the same thing your friends want, well, it's not going to go well. So, you know, on the other hand, if you really realize that what you're most, you know, interested in doing next is, you know, X size company, you know, customer facing certain types of roles, certain industries, like now you're zeroing in, you know, a play, you know, if you, if you care about having an office culture, you care about having, uh, you know, a place where you have a lot of autonomy, like those are the types of attributes you should be thinking about, not, is it the same thing all your friends are doing? Like, doesn't matter. So as long as you're being very intellectually honest, I think you can get yourself in a very good situation. Um, again and again, though, like I'll come back to, you know, the people who I've seen just have really incredible career outcomes are the ones who, you know, pick or happen to go to very high growth companies. It's hard to find those for sure, but it's not entirely unknown. Um, the, the story I usually tell people is, you know, uh, when I left, college, I had the opportunity to join, you know, let's say one of them was Google. So I got offered a job at Google and I said, oh, Google, you know, Google's not growing anymore. They're so big. They're so big. You know, they're 20,000 people. They're so big. And, you know, I look back at that now and I think what a boneheaded thing to think, <laughs> whether or not it's the right place for me to go, I don't know. But it was silly to think Google's so big, they're not going to keep growing. Like they're now 200,000 people or something. Don't quote me on that number, but they've, you know, certainly 10x since then. Same with, you know, Facebook and Apple and Netflix and whatever. So I guess what my point is that it's not unknown who are the very high growth, exciting companies. So if you really want that sort of uh, biggest step up, go to those ones that are known and they might be series C, series D, or maybe even a little later, but still growing, you know, 60 to 100% a year 
where you're going to get enormous amounts of learning. You don't have to go and find the unknown startup that no one's ever heard of and no one knows if it's going to work or not to get that experience. Certainly you can, and there can be even more learnings, but I'd say if you go too early, it's hard to know whether it'll succeed or not. And so it's a bit of a, a less certain bet. But so I guess, you know, there's a lot of uh, very clear winners that you can go work for that'll get you a lot of good experience. Awesome. I appreciate that. And Alex, I have enjoyed our discussion, but that's our time for today. Um, but before we go, how can our audience connect with you? And I know you also have a podcast, so I'd love the shameless plug for that as well. Yeah, you did promise me I could make a shameless plug. So you're coming through. So, uh, you know, feel free to go to our site at regal.io or email me at hello at regal.io to learn more about how to use our software for these high velocity B2C sales teams. Um, and then, yeah, separate from that, we do run a podcast and, you know, please uh, follow me on LinkedIn and, and you'll learn more about the podcast. Awesome. Well, we will make sure to link both to Regal and to your LinkedIn so that anyone that is interested can stay connected. So wherever you are listening or watching this podcast, take a look at the show notes so that you can stay connected with Alex. Um, and also for other stories, pop back to episodes 35, 37, and 41. Um, well, Alex, thank you so, so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. I can't believe we're at the end. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Revenue Rehab with your host, Brandy Starr. Your session is now over, but the learning has just begun. Join our mailing list and catch up on all our shows at revenuerehab.live. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at Revenue Rehab. This concludes this week's session. We'll see you next week.